So, Heather Rose is the award-winning author of Bruni and the Museum of Modern Love, as well as six other novels spanning literary fiction, magical realism, crime fiction, political fiction, and fantasy. Her novels have won the Stella Prize, the Christina Stead Prize, the Margaret Scott Prize, and the ABIA General Fiction Book of the Year. And please don't ask me what ABIA stands for. Um, her work has been published... What does it stand for? Australian Book Industry Awards. Oh, thank you yeah. again. My apologies. I should know that kind of thing, really. Her work has been published internationally and translated into numerous languages. She's a passionate teacher of writing and a mentor for developing novelists. Quite apart from this, she's also had a significant career in business. She is a Telstra Tasmanian Businesswoman of the Year and the recipient of two National Creative Partnership Awards for her contribution to the arts. She has won over 25 national and international awards for advertising and marketing. Amongst all this and the exploits we'll be discussing in a moment, Heather manages to be the mother of three children and her love of parenting led her to collaboration with the award-winning author Danielle Wood on a children's fantasy series that has been published internationally. Heather lives in Tasmania. Please welcome her to Melania. Hi. Thank you, Stephen, and it's so lovely to be up here with you all, not the least of which it's very warm for me, so thank you. Thank you for coming. You've established yourself as a novelist, as I said in the introduction of eight novels, including a couple that have been more than simply well-received. What made you to suddenly decide to write a memoir? I mean, I actually have written here, what on earth made you decide? <laughs> Good <laughs> question, Stephen. <laughs> I thought about that a lot as I went through this process. What on earth made me do this? I turned 50 and I was quite unwell and my three children had often asked me to put all my stories together and because they wanted it for their children in time. And I thought, well, I better get on with it because, you know, if I... If I don't end up staying around very much longer, I better. I would be good. It would be good to yeah. have them written down. So I started, and then it took a very long time because it was an excruciating process, and I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I mean, it's a very different style of writing. When we write novels, everything is fluid. I mean, we're very, quite happy to, to if the story demands it, to change a character's name, gender, employment, marriage, status, anything, the whole thing without regret, you know, or to kill them off straight away, there's no problem. But when you write a memoir, you're dealing with fact, or certainly with some kind of truth. So you have to, you have to build your narrative around what's already there, and that's a much harder thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How hard was it to find then, I mean, because there is, you have given this book a kind of narrative thread, and I just wanted to, I mean, here's a, very early in the evening to be asking hard questions, but you know, how much of that narrative thread that you've given it is the truth, or how much of it is, is the novelist coming through? So when I first uh, did the initial draft, and, and Stephen is quite right, we have a lot of flexibility as novelists, not least of which is that we get... Characters have a certain voice. I'm sure there are writers in this audience, yeah? Does anyone want to confess that they are a writer too? Yeah, good. So we have characters and they have a certain voice and the narrative itself has a certain voice. And that's one of the reasons we love certain authors is because they always bring a certain voice to the book regardless of what the story is. With a memoir, I had to find my own voice. And... 
in order to do that, I did what I do with all my novels. I wrote everything about everyone. So for a book like The Butterfly Man, for example, my second novel, it, it ended up being about 85,000 words. But I wrote over half a million to come back to that because I had to know about everyone, so I have to write that. So in this case, I wrote this incredibly long memoir. I wrote all sorts of stories, travel stories, stories about my grandparents, stories about recipes, because my children wanted me to write the recipes and the stories about them. Uh, I wrote lo lots about writing. There, there was a whole world of the writer's life within it. And of course, I wrote about spirituality. And when I looked at it, it was this great tome, and I thought, I, I don't know what to do with that. I just don't know. So I sent it to my wonderful agent, who's been with me since my first novel back in 1997. And she said, look, and then she sent it on to my publishers, and I have had a long-term relationship with an editor uh, called Ali Laveau, who's extremely experienced and very wise in all things. And my request for her is always, show me what I don't know about my writing, push me as hard as you can to help me to become a better writer. And they all said, look, we think there's three books here. There's the one about family, there's the one about travel and anecdotes and writing, and then there's the one about spirituality, and we really think this is the one you should focus on because it's such a powerful story. It was the one I least wanted to write about. <laughs> I had actually, I think, constructed everything else so people wouldn't notice this bit up here. And the challenge of that was if I was going to own that story, I had to put myself back in the little girl that I was, the teenager that I was, the 20-year-old. And you think that's normal with a memoir, but actually finding that very vulnerable and sentient and curious person who also made a lot of really quite brave decisions. It was hard to go back and find her and see her vulnerability and see her, her openness to life, see the pain that she went through. I had to go back and feel it all. So that was quite different because I don't know about you, but with characters, you know, we get this wonderful opportunity to play with them. It's almost as if we get to inhabit a character on a stage. But suddenly I was the character, and it was so difficult. I, I, it, 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 I was dishevelled by it <laughs> on I'm, many occasions. I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk about that because there's a, the, in, in your description just there you gave a moment ago, it, there was a, an incredible generosity towards your younger self. I remember going back to write about my younger self, particularly the years, um, you know, my, my youth, as it were, and, and finding very little sympathy with the person that I had been whatsoever. <laughs> I, I mean, there were some very seriously poor decisions that I made. <laughs> Time and time again. Uh, did, did, did you not find that? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm well, not trying to make you out to be me, but I just, I just know that I made a lot of mistakes. Well, you talked and about... And I had very little sympathy for it. Yes, yes. Well, that narrative thread, if I was going to look through the lens of my spiritual evolution, or devolution, I like to think, actually, yeah. uh, that I 
what I saw in that arc was the sensitive, vulnerable and, and grief-stricken person who then went on to make decisions because of that vulnerability and grief. I had never put that together before. I had sensed it at times, but if anything, I was doing my best to cover all that up. Yeah. So let's look at that narrative thread just for a minute, because you open the book with this young girl, at six years old, in a schoolyard, uh, standing under a tree. Uh, I'll let you take it from there. Mm, I'm wearing a green check uniform that my mother has made for me, because mum made all our uniforms. There are other children playing. It was a tiny school. I grew up south of Hobart. There were only 60 students in the primary school. And they were playing on the seesaws and the swings. And for whatever reason, I went over to this beautiful gum tree that still exists there today and I visited recently. And I looked up through the branches and I spoke to whatever is up there. And I said, I'm here. Tell me what to do. I want to be of service. And I, I don't know, it still moves me to think that I was so young and I wanted to give my life to make some sort of contribution. I have a, a devout Christian father and he's, he emanates the best of Christian faith, love, charity towards all, kindness. And I have a mother who thinks that heaven is here on earth and has absolutely no regard for any religion whatsoever. <laughs> so somewhere in there, I was curious. There was a big gap in the family about what, what would I believe? Would I believe this or would I believe this? And for whatever reason, that took me off to stand under that gum tree and say, here I am, I'm ready, tell me what to do. And one of the things that you... No one answered back, let me say. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, was, I was pleased that I volunteered. Oh, well, it felt important. Well, no, I'm, I'm going to jump... I was had some of the things I was going to ask, but I'm going to jump forward a little bit because in some ways, later on, not when, uh, to the six-year-old girl, but to the 20-year-old girl or something like that, someone did answer back because you found yourself being... Assailed, and found yourself in dreams all the time that were giving you messages, yeah? Mm. Where did they come from? Where, was that, where were those messages? Who was giving you those messages? Well, I start the book with the little girl under the tree, but then I point out that because of modern physics, we know that 70% of what is here is dark energy. 25% is dark matter. So we humans, everything we have ever created, everything we've ever learned or manufactured, invented, anything that is here that we can sense with our senses is only 5% of what is actually both outside us and inside us. It may be much less than that. The physicists may still be incorrect and be, you know, exaggerating that figure could be 0.05%. So there is a lot going on that we don't know about. And I think that those things come to us from this, the 95%. I think there's a lot going on, and it's a great invitation not to take it too seriously. 
but it's also an invitation to be open because in my travels around the world, and I'm nearly 60, in my travels, I have asked people all my life, have you ever had an experience that you couldn't explain? Did someone come and visit you after they had died? Have you ever felt called to do something or dissuaded from doing something because you found out later it was actually a dangerous thing to do or it, it just was not going to be a good choice? Have you ever felt visited by some kind of force that felt benevolent or helpful? And it has been rare for me in the many, many, many hundreds and hundreds of conversations I've had in that regard for people to say no. Most everybody I've met has volunteered a story. So I don't know that it's that unusual, it's just that we don't talk about it or admit to it. And partly because of this idea that life is meant to be fixed and solid and reasonable and, and uh, somehow predictable. But we all know it isn't. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of different vignettes through this book. Like, I mean, the, 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 the story does have a kind of central narrative, but it takes place and you go... And I don't want to go through all of them because I think it's the pleasure the reader deserves to give for themselves. But for me, in a way, at the very kind of centre of the book is this whole thing that you did with the Lakota Indians mm. in America. Uh, can, can you tell us, I mean, I, how you first decided to go on a vision quest and, and then what happened after that? Mm. I was in my uh, mid-twenties. I had a two-year-old by this stage and I was living in Melbourne working in an advertising agency and doing that early, those early years of mothering that are very busy in a busy city and you know, juggling all of that, a career. I was tired and a girlfriend invited me to a sweat lodge weekend and I didn't know what a sweat lodge was. I'm sure a number of you here do. I had a profound experience in that weekend and after that I started to have repetitive dreams. Night after night after night I dreamed that I was in a pine forest. I could smell the pine needles. I could feel them under my feet. There were women there who were beading there was the smell of campfires, there were people chatting, people were winding twine around feathers. It was a vivid, living dream. I would wake up from it and literally feel that I'd been there, I could smell it. And it happened night after night for maybe three weeks. And I finally went to see the person who had run the Sweat Lodge weekend, and he was a man who had spent a lot of time in America with the, with the Lakota and other Native American tribes. And he said, you're being called to a Sundance. And I didn't know what a Sundance was, but it's a ceremony that the Lakota and a number of other tribes practice. It happens when the choke cherries turn black, which is the height of summer on a full moon. And there are four days of preparation, four days of dancing, and four days of recovery. In order to be eligible to participate in a Sundance, I had to go on a vision quest. So despite my desperate love of my two-year-old and not wanting to leave him, and my partner at the time, I bought a ticket and jumped on a plane and flew to California and I met with some people who were connected to the person who had 
run the sweat lodge weekend and they took me in and I bought myself a $200 brown 1974 Volvo that broke down uh, about 70 times in the time that I had it over two months. And I headed out to Arizona to a camp that I knew was happening for uh, people who wanted to participate in a vision quest uh, with a Paiute grandfather. And I went up on the hill, as we say. I went out up on the hill. I went out to an escarpment up in the high desert and, and participated in a vision quest, which is to have... Um, I just took a blanket with me and various ceremonial items, but I was out there for four nights and four days with no food and no water. And then I returned and I went back in the sweat lodge, shared my story with the, with the elder, and then drove north to, Aris uh, to um, uh, gosh, isn't that so crazy? I drove north to, um, how can I not remember that, Stephen? Which, which state is it? North of California. Oh, yeah, Oregon. Oregon, thank yeah, you so much. Yeah. It just blanked completely on me. To Oregon, up in the mountains in Oregon. And there were about 150 people, most of them Native American. Uh, it, I set up camp along with everybody else and I presented my pipe. I was by then a, a pipe carrier. And I presented my pipe to the Sundance chief in his teepee. He asked me why I wanted to be a Sundancer and he could see I'd come a long way. And he asked me a number of questions and then he agreed that I could come, but it was very, uh, that I could dance, but I had to comply with some very strict rules. I had to be willing to come back every year for four years. I had to live as a sun dancer every day for those four years. So there are rituals about that on a daily basis. And more than anything, I had to live with integrity and I had to live in a way that a Sundancer lives, and that is to be of service to people if you are called to go where spirit sends you and to do what spirit asks of you. And that became my life for four years. And four years is a, a really long time. <laughs> it's I mean, a long time. You, I mean, before this, you'd been off to Thailand and, and spent some months in a, in a monastery on the edge of the Thai-Burmese border. Is that right? Mm, yeah. A Laos. Laos, uh, yeah. Uh, Laos, sorry. And um, so you, you had some experience of sitting still and, and of, of being in your own head and everything like that. But four years of... of and then at the end of each year, this uh, extraordinary experience of the Sundance, which I, I probably should leave people to read about because it's so extraordinary the experience that you're describing but it I mean how did you deal how did you deal with the doubt the doubt yeah I mean there must have you must have been plagued by terrible just sitting there for four days and four nights out on the hill as you say <laughs> yes I mean I've, I've been out in the bush alone by myself several times and, and I, I, I know that doubt is one of the things that comes up and, and uh, non-specific anxiety and various different things like that, that that are really very difficult to deal with. Well, Peter and I have a lot in common. I, I loved your conversation. It was beautiful. I grew up in Tasmania. I grew up with bush and wilderness and wild places and creatures and 
and sunrise and sunset. I feel like I grew up with a fishing line in my hand because I spend a lot of time fishing with my grandfather. Sunrise, sunset. Nature is not an unfamiliar place for me and being in nature on my own is a happy place for me. It always has been. Yeah. Uh, one of my earliest memories uh, of being at the shack is I'd, I'd take the chisel and hammer out of Grandad's workshop and I'd make my way down to the shore at low tide. It was a muddy, there were mud flats down there and there were oysters on all the rocks. And I'd chip away at the oyster, open it up and like that. And I was really small. And I loved being, I've always loved being on my own in nature. So I didn't doubt my ability to be in nature and, and to find uh, a benevolent experience in nature. I did have some doubts because I was in America and I hadn't actually done any research on were there actually mountain lions in this area or would they eat me? I didn't think so. I, I've always felt at peace in nature. The thing I doubted was what on earth was I doing in a Lakota ritual when I'm an Australian? Why, if I had this urge to be with Indigenous people, was I not with the Australian Indigenous people? Why was I in America? And why was I so far from my little son? And what on earth had I got myself into? That My doubt was much more existential. And there are no answers for those questions. So, so I, uh, how did I manage them? Well, I managed them like I learned to manage them in the monastery. I was 19 when I went into that Buddhist monastery. I put them aside. Okay. <laughs> what else do you do with them? I put them aside. Yeah. There are better things to focus on, like breathing. And in the book there, you, you mentioned that at the end of this period where you'd been doing the Sundance, which went on for four years with the rituals in between and, and all the rest of it, that it just came to an end. I know. That was the strangest experience. I never expected to stop going. But at the end, it was almost like a thunderclap. I, I, it was the last round. We danced from sun up, as I said, to sundown long days in the middle of summer. And by then I was dancing down in New Mexico in the high desert also, so it was very hot, very dry. And I went to the tree to, as part of the ritual that I embarked on. There's sun dancers in a circle around a tree that we have taken from a forest, a cottonwood, and we've dug a big hole and we've put the tree in that and it's robed in the most beautiful coloured robes that are the, the prayer flags and it's wrapped in prayer ties. So it's, this, it's like an ancient sort of maypole, if you can imagine that. And then everyone's in ritual clothing and they're singing. We have singers and a drum that would take up this kind of space on on the earth and, you know, 15, 20 drummers and dancers and singing and all of that. I go to the tree in the very last round to complete that fourth year and I have this powerful sense of leaving my body and shooting up the tree. And then when I come back down into my body, it's as if a door closed and it's almost as if the music gets turned down. It, it's in a different room. I can hear it. Everything 
stopped and I felt I had just been sent back out again. I'd been in this world for four years and suddenly it was not my world anymore. It was a most disconcerting experience. I really didn't know what it meant, but I understood that what I'd done is I'd given myself entirely to this commitment for four years. I promised I would do that. I lived it truthfully and honestly with every fibre of my being. And at four years, it was done. And you make this sort of slightly comment aside aside when you get back that a lot of people in Australia are engaged in kind of several new age activities, but they, it, it's all a little bit wishy-washy. I know, I do have it. Uh, I did, I did. I made a disparaging comment about that. It wasn't quite painful enough? Possibly. Yes, I, I got very attached to physical pain going through all those rituals and, and the transportive uh, capacity of physical pain to send the mind into places that I couldn't get to any other way. So when I then became involved in uh, a women's circle, it just seemed very soft and gentle, and I didn't know what to do with that. In fact, I love that now. I think it's the most beautiful thing to be in a soft, gentle space. But there I was in my 20s, by then my late 20s, pretty hardcore about things. Yeah. I mean, I've only recently read um, your lovely novel, The Museum of Modern Love, in fact, just in the last week or so. And I'm, I'm quite glad that it, I came to it after uh, Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here because uh, it gave me an incredible insight into... It, you brought a lot of yourself into the creation of... Uh, your, you brought a lot of yourself and your experience of pain and your experience of sitting still, as it were, to the, the per, Marina Abramovich, yeah? Mm, I mean, so to those of you who haven't read that novel, uh, it's based on the life of a woman called Marina Abramovich. She's born in 1946 in the former Yugoslavia and she's the grandmother of performance art. She's been a performance artist uh, since her early 20s and she did a very famous performance in 2010 in New York where she sat... Uh, two chairs, a table in the middle, she sat in a chair and she maintained eye contact and was in silence for three months, having eye contact uh, through the opening hours of the, of the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, and she, the rigour of that was extreme. But the reason, and that's sort of the framing of the book, is around those, you know, 78, 76 days that she was in, cer in ceremony, isn't that funny? she was doing this performance, but what I saw when I went to sit opposite her, I had been writing the novel for a number of years, but, uh, and I had been drawn to her because I'd seen a photograph of one of her performance pieces at the National Gallery of Victoria, and it talked about this particular performance where she had 72 items on a table, including a rose and a, and a bottle of olive oil and a loaf of bread, but also chains, a whip, a gun and a bullet. And she allowed the audience to do whatever they wanted to do to her for five hours during this performance. And then the descriptor went on to say, Marina Bravich is also well known for a piece called The Great Walk, where she and her partner Ulai walked from either end of the Great... Sorry, Brock. Either end of the Great Wall of China to meet in the middle to say goodbye to each other to end their relationship of 11 years. 
And I thought, who does that? I mean, what sort of a crazy person does that? Who is so romantic, so, so brave, that they would let the audience use all of those things on her? And they did nearly kill her. And then is so romantic that she will spend months walking towards this man that she had loved so deeply to say goodbye. And I thought, oh, there's a character for a novel. And fast forward another five years and I'm sitting opposite her at the Museum of Modern Art in this performance called The Artist is Present. And I thought, this is the closest thing to Sundancing I've actually found in all these years because it was a ceremony, it's, it's in the form of art, but I'm sure Peter would understand this. There's a lot of ceremony in art, whether it's you're using oil paints or whether you're using your body. In fact, all art, I think, in a way, is tapping into that unseen and those unseen forces that are also present in any ceremony. And most artists of any ilk have ceremonial aspects to their lives to help frame the process because it's it's a big world to inhabit. You know this, Stephen. It's yeah. a big world to inhabit, the creative world, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it, it's a difficult place that mm. you go to to produce things and most writers will tell you that they spend an awful lot of time avoiding it before they'll dive in. It, yeah. it tends to be um, different when you actually get into it. Once, it's, once you're into it, it's fine. But What do you do to get into it? Oh, don't even ask. You oh, know, come you know, on. No. <laughs> we have a very clean house, OK? Yes, 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 there you go, absolutely. I have yeah. a vegetable garden, you know. I have, I've, 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 I've various, I have dogs, I have various ways of getting around it, you know. Yeah. But you sat with um, Marina yourself at, at MoMA because she then reprised it later, didn't she? She hasn't ever reprised that exact thing. No, I, you wouldn't really want to. I would have thought 75 days or 76 days sitting in a chair would be quite enough, really, mm. looking into other people's eyes. But it's, it's a curious thing as well, um, this looking into each other's eyes, mm. because uh, we inhabit this earth, and, and one of the, the things that we say about ourselves all the time is that we are very alone in ourselves and we have no idea who anybody else is. But we never actually sit down and look in each other's eyes for any extended period, except you know, on very rare occasions when you first fall in love, you might kind of stay, stare moony-eyed into each other's faces for a long, long time. You know, but, but that idea of actually formally, ceremonially sitting there and having a look and seeing what happens, it's, it's a, an extraordinary thing to do. And a, an even more extraordinary thing to do with a whole bunch of strangers in some ways, or to offer that to a whole bunch of strangers. I recommend it. So, to do it with your beloveds, to do it with your partner, your family, your children, it's a powerful experience. It's revealing. <laughs> but, um, I mean, the other thing that comes out of that um, uh, book, The Museum of Modern Love, but also what you're talking about with the Sundance and things, is that you do have a very intimate relationship with pain. Mm. I mean, you were, at some point in your life, you were diagnosed as having, um, uh, I've got it written down here, so I didn't mess it up, but I can't find it on the page. Uh, Ankylizing spondylitis, spondylitis, is that it? It's okay. Mm. <laughs> Ankylizing spondylitis. So well, how old were you when that diagnosis came on? I was 21 when I had a formal diagnosis. Oh, so you mean when you were doing all these sun dances and things like that, you had already, you were already suffering from this? 
Yes, it wasn't as serious as it got in my 30s. It got much more serious in my 30s. It had been bad since I was about 10, but it, it, it didn't stop me, obviously. <laughs> I was very athletic, and, and I, I would really struggle after hockey games and tennis matches and you know softball games and sailing and everything. I mean, I, I, I had flat, little, little flares. Um, to those of you who have any form of arthritis, that it is an inflammatory form of arthritis. It's the sort that um, will flare as you get older, it gets worse. So it, by my 30s, it became quite crippling on many, many, many occasions for weeks and months on end. Uh, but it, it's also the form that in men it used to fuse their spines. So sometimes you would see men that were completely bent over, older men. Luckily now we have anti-inflammatories uh, and so people don't f fuse anymore. Uh, and we have other wonderful drugs too, which you know, stop us from having severe debilitation. But when I was 21, I, I, I had, I had um, a very serious flare uh, while I was living in London and it brought me back to Australia and I couldn't walk. And when I eventually got out of bed and I'm on walking sticks, I got to see a rheumatologist and and there wasn't very much known about the condition with women back then, no surprise to many women, that no research had been done on our particular variant of the condition. And she said to me, it's very severe, it's obviously very severe, you'll be in a wheelchair by the time you're 30. And I walked out of that office and I thought, that's not going to be my life. So I set about making sure it wasn't. And coming to terms with pain in some ways. Always. So, um, look, now might be a good time just to have a pat to give the audience sure. a bit of a flavour of, of of your of your writing. Would you? Sure. You've got a little passage you've chosen there. To well, a, to <laughs> this <laughs> this piece is actually from in the monastery. So it's um, when. I went, I went to the monastery because I uh, had, when I went overseas, when I was 19, I had one name and it was the name of a Buddhist monk in Bangkok. He had been studying in Perth and had met a friend of mine. And I had an interest in Buddhism, so I'd been given his name and I, I, went, to, I, I went to Bangkok and I went down the river and I found his monastery and I met with him every day for a couple of weeks. And then it was going to be a thing called the Rains Retreat in Thailand, which is when the monks go home to their home village and the monastery that they come from if they've you know, moved into the city. So I travelled out to the border of Laos and this is what happened. Uh, so I arrived in the morning and I'd had this whole day of meditation and having to get my head around this whole new way of living. At the end of that first day, I returned to my room. A window looks out into the forest. It has flywire but no glass. The night is close and still. There is no electricity, so I light a candle. I spread my sleeping sheet on the narrow mattress. I sewed it from a single bed sheet before leaving Tasmania. By now it's been washed so many times the cotton has softened and the yellow flowers have faded. Turning to undress, I freeze. The candlelight has illuminated a mandala of huntsman spiders lurking on the flywire. 
each as big as my hand. I'm not worried by snakes. I don't mind heights. I don't mind fingernails on blackboards. But huntsmen send a chill through me. The size and colour and hairiness of them. The unpredictable way they run across ceilings and walls. I worry about them falling on me when I'm asleep. They were plentiful at the shack in Newbina, their favourite haunt being the outdoor toilet. I never took a torch in there, causing Mum to laugh and say, you won't be able to see what you're doing. I figured it was better to be ignorant than terrified. I don't want to disturb anyone. I have no broom with which to shoo these spiders out. And even if I tried, they'd run in every direction. I can't take a shoe and whack them for the same reason. Besides, Buddhists believe in the sacredness of life. Killing is forbidden and I'm in a monastery. Even if I had the courage to pick them up and toss them outside, there are simply too many of them. Then one of them moves. With a huge sigh of relief, I see that they are on the outside of the flywire. I slide into my sleeping sheet and rest my head on the pillow. Mosquitoes swirl about me, but I'm not allowed to kill them either. I sigh and raise my eyes to the ceiling. There, to my horror, are another 23 huntsmen awaiting their evening fare of small flying creatures. 23 just above my head. I am exhausted after my night on the train and the day I've just had. I stare at the spiders for a few minutes. Then I blow out the candle and pull the sheet up over my head. Unlike a bed base filled with cockroaches that I discovered one night in Bali, I can't convince myself I haven't seen these spiders. Nothing will make them go away. Will they crawl over me in the night? Will they get inside my sheet? I close my eyes and sleep. Maybe the spiders do run over me. I don't know. At 3 a.m. I am woken by the sound of a soft gong summoning us to the sala. The huntsmen are still there, watchful and silent, as I put on the black dress and depart for morning meditation. One, one thing we haven't touched on yet is the, is the title of the book. Because mm. something, something bad did happen um, mm. when, you, when, you, when you were 12 years old, yeah? Yeah. You want me to tell you? <laughs> this is always the worst bit. Write a memoir, pour your heart out onto the page. It comes out as a book, and then I find myself having to tell it. And it's excruciating every time. So when I was... Tw I'm the third of four children. I have two older brothers and a baby sister. I'm 12 years old. As I said, I grew up with a fishing line in my hand. I, I loved my grandfather. I loved all my grandparents, and they all lived close by. But my grandfather, my mum's dad, was a very keen fisherman. And he taught us to row, taught us to fish, taught us to hunt, taught me how to know what direction I'm facing, taught me what the moon phases are, taught me about the tides, taught me to always look back when I'm walking along a pathway so I'd know which way I'd come. He and my older brother, Byron, uh, were great friends too. They spent a lot of time together. 
and it was the September holidays in Tasmania, so pretty cold. And Byron and Grandad and Nan headed off to the shack down on the Tasman Peninsula. Uh, ahead of us, we, we were coming a few days later. And on this particular beautiful morning, they took the boat over to a place called Lime Bay, known for the most beautiful iridescent lime green water. They went out and set a net and came back in, had cups of tea with my nan, and then a breeze came up and Grandad thought maybe he ought to go get the net, so he and Byron jumped back in the boat and rowed out into the bay. And by now it was squalling, and for those of you who've been to Tasmania, you know how changeable the weather is. It was squalling, there was a low chop, they were pulling in the net and they fell out of the boat. And that was the last day they were alive. They never came back to shore alive. And, and after that, it's kind of, that's the point, apart from the six-year-old girl in the, in the schoolyard under the tree, this is the point where you start to try and figure out what's going on and what's happening here. And it's, it's much, much later that you come back to that mm. place. Yeah, it took me years to go back there. It's, it's called Saltwater River and... Yeah, it took me until I was uh, in my early 50s to go back there. After, after they died, my family completely disintegrated. My mum just couldn't bear to have their names spoken. Nobody spoke about it. We weren't, we weren't allowed to talk about it because it was too painful. So my parents' marriage dissolved. My old remaining brother went off elsewhere. My sister went with my mum when she fell in love with another man and moved out. And, I was left in the family home on my own by the end of year 12. And then I started saving very hard to leave Tasmania and that's why I went away when I was so young because I really was never ever going to go back because I thought you could leave the past behind. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so I went down to, I, I go away every year with two very treasured girlfriends and. One of us always books the house, and when I realised where they'd booked the house on this particular occasion, I thought, oh, maybe it's time. So we went to the place that I thought they had picnicked and where they'd launched the boat. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what sort of ritual I should enact. I didn't know if I should have brought anything or should I make something or should I sing a song, what should I do? And all I felt to do was go into the water and swim. So I swam. It was cold, but I love cold water. And I swam for a long time and then I floated on my back for a long time. And I had a, a very powerful experience after I came back to shore and started to write about the, the experience that I'd had in the water, I then had a very powerful physical experience that 
literally shook my body. And this was not a response to the cold. This is at least half an hour later. That shook my body. And it seemed that what was trying to come through me was this really powerful sense that, yes, a terrible, terrible thing happened. My beautiful, nearly 16-year-old brother drowned. My beautiful grandfather drowned. My family was destroyed. All the people in my family have gone on and went on with carrying that pain, like so many of us carry the pain of grief. And yet, I couldn't find a sense that anything bad had happened there. I wanted to, I was looking for it. But there was a sense that, yes, something very human happened here. People died, and they died in a really tragic way. But in our human world, we look at life as right and wrong and black and white and good and bad. But the sense that I got from that was maybe nothing bad ever happens here. Maybe it's all simply what happens and we bring our judgments to it and we bring our fears to it. But maybe nothing bad ever happens here and that's why the book is called that. Thank, thank you for that. I'm, I'm looking at the time here and I'm, I'm, I think we should probably go to questions from the audience in a, in a moment. But let me just ask one more, go one more place here because I was just interested in that book, the most recent novel you wrote, which is Bruni, <laughs> um, which is in many ways a, a kind of more conventional novel in that it has a kind of plot and a narrative and characters and things happen, you know? It's like commercial fiction, Stephen. I didn't mean to do that. Yeah. <laughs> But you also bring, obviously, your kind of your the skills you learnt in the business world to it because you're you're dealing with, uh, well, it's it's a bit of a critique really of late stage capitalism, the whole thing, and I I wondered if that was in some way, uh, the novel had had its genesis in your involvement in the anti-logging campaigns and the anti the, the opposition to the the Tasmanian government's exploitation of the landscape and things, because you were very involved in, in some of that. Mm, it certainly came out of a bit of outrage, definitely. I, I mean, I had been watching Tasmania be for sale for some time. And uh, I went, I, because I was a businesswoman, I was invited to a conference where Xi Jinping came and 200 Chinese delegates. And I watched the Tasmanian government basically say, have whatever you like with no, no limitations. You know, in Switzerland, you cannot buy a piece of land in Switzerland unless you've lived in the country for seven years and you have citizenship. In Australia, you can buy a piece of land up until after Bruni came out. Uh, the Foreign Investment Review Board reviews purchases of land, but only uh, over half a million hectares. Yeah? So it's not the Chinese government that you need to be frightened of. It's the government that you elect and the rules that we have in place that allow foreign ownership of our waterways, of our land, of our agricultural land, and, and of course, of endless amounts of housing that gives the right to citizenship. 
So that, that's what it started with. It started with that level of concern about our complete inability to see that we were giving away our children's future in water and land and agricultural production. It, it just horrified me. And it, yeah, I mean, the I, fact I, that it, Tasmania was just a microcosm of that and I was watching all this magnificent agricultural land um, that is meant to be you know, here for future generations. Instead, that produce goes offshore, our milk goes offshore from Tasmania. We, it's incredible how little stays in Tasmania. Mm. I mean, I thought I, I thought I possibly picked up in your talk just then about um, the recent acquisition of some of the big salmon farms in Tasmania. Don't get me started. <laughs> there, it's perfectly possible to do fish farming on, on land and have a closed loop. And we have destroyed magnificent rivers and waterways in Tasmania, and we are continuing to do it. And the Tasmanian government has just sold... You know, we've just had two of our large fish farm producers uh, sell to a Brazilian company that has a horrendous track record environmentally. And the government has just been found to have had a $4,000 ahead, you know, political lunch, where they've declared, we have a 10-year strategy, you don't need to worry, we've got an expansion program in place. But it's gone ahead now, yeah? It, it, we will fight tooth and nail to keep the, it from expanding more in Tasmania. It, it, will, it will not go away. Yeah. More and more people are waking up to it, thank goodness. Yeah. There does seem to be a, a resurgence of Please don't buy Tasmanian salmon. That's what I'm asking you. Please do not buy Tasmanian salmon. Not in any form. So let's see, we've got... Oh, there is one producer, sorry, I should say, there's one producer that I heard about a couple of days ago, and I think it's called 40 South, that produces without... Hello. Um, produces uh, in a closed loop on land, but it's the only one. Please don't buy Tassau. Please don't buy Hewan. It is destroying Tasmania. Okay. So let's go to some questions from the audience. Do we have any questions? I am um, attempting to write a memoir for my two daughters and our grandchildren. Um, my question is, what do you leave out? <laughs> it, it, it's a great question. I mean, write it all. By all means, write it all. But as we started, Finding a narrative arc, I think, is helpful because it keeps a certain pace. Otherwise, we languish in these little eddies of this bit or that bit or this bit. Whereas if, if you consider that the reader needs to have a sense of some sort of sense that this is a story that has a purpose and a meaning, like any, like any story, and if you can find something that compels you and that is evident, and this is why it's hard, because you have to go back and find it in all these parts of yourself. But it is possible, as I've learned, to join the dots. But it's not always obvious to you. So once you've done the big one, I would really recommend giving it to a professional reader. I would not give it to someone close to you. I never recommend to my students that they 
share their work with someone close because often at that moment all you really want from that person is for them to say you've done a really good job keep going and if you want that sort of feedback tell them that's what you want but so often that honesty that comes sometimes with oh gee I don't know why you put that in can be quite crushing even the most minimal amount of negative feedback can put off a fledgling writer and, and a person at a fledgling stage in the project so yeah, get it get it looked at by someone, you know, professional. And there's plenty of them. Get a recommendation of a good one, and then take the criticism. That's the really hard bit. Oh come on! Yes. I just agree with what you just said there. About, yeah, you're about, the same. Um, yeah. I, I never show anything that I've written until the end of the second draft at least, you know, and probably later. And that the second draft means about 12 drafts in, in some ways, you know, <laughs> exactly. is what I'm saying, you know? Because if I give it to somebody I know, they will think, oh, God, Stephen's given me this, it's dreadful, what am I going to say? I'll say, oh, yeah, the policeman in Chapter 3, he, I don't think he rings true, you know? And so I will then follow the policeman. I'll go, oh, yeah, I have to rewrite the policeman, you know? And it's like, the policeman, they were just trying to make me feel better. You know, it, it, it's not nothing to do with the policeman. So uh, yeah. it, it, it's, it's a bum steer. Really. Yes, exactly. It's quite distracting. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's not what you want at that stage. But it is really wonderful to have people who are willing to say, awesome, it's so great, please keep going. Because yeah. that's really, you just need that's encouragement, what, don't you? Exactly. <laughs> Hello. So, yes, so Heather, um, I guess there'd be a lot of people in the room that uh, read Museum of Modern Love and then, of course, read Bruni. And our book club was such. And... Um, Museum of Modern Love was probably one of the most beautiful books that our club has um, discussed, I think. It, it really completely transformed me and transfixed us as well. Just the whole concept of it was great. I guess my question is, you went from this really deeply moving, I think, um, novel, and then to Bruni, which was, um, had, a bit of a, had lots of twists and it was crime, it was a whole range of things. It must have been difficult to move from that movie, uh, that uh, particular book, the Museum of Modern Love, into that genre, into Bruni. So, how did you, how do you, as a writer, move so completely differently from one book to the other, or different genre? Um, so, a character turns up, and they turn up in a world, and there's a scene, and I. So, for example, with Bruni, I was walking the beach at home, and. When I get to the far end of the beach, I look down the Derwent River and I can see North Bruni and also the Dontracasto Channel and there happened to be a low cloud bank lying across the water and it looked like a bridge. And I remember thinking, oh, why would there... That would be... Why would there be a bridge? What, what would be happening if there was a bridge? And almost instantly I saw Astrid at the airport at Hobart sort of carrying that world-weary traveller luggage of the world traveller, looking like a world traveller. And I see that she's met by this much more diminutive person who's clearly a relative. And they truck off home together and I follow them home and they, there they all are, the Coleman's. And so for me, that's how it goes. When I, 
I did Museum of Modern Love. I was actually on the Isle of Skye when I had the first big download of that. I'd been there doing a writer's residency, um, yeah, a writer's residency uh, with the City of Literature in Edinburgh, and I'd gone out to Skye because years ago I lived there and I, I wanted to go back. And I was uh, in a small hotel, so really, really, really boutique hotel on a very beautiful sort of paddock that went down to the shore and there were only maybe eight of us in the restaurant. There, were, there was a family group who had nothing whatsoever to say to each other and there was a couple, so maybe it was only seven, there was a couple and then there was me and of course as many of us know who've had to eat on our own in a restaurant, especially as a single woman, it's really good to kind of minimise your impact because it, it feels very obvious that you're alone. And so I, I was sitting there thinking I should have brought a book down. Uh, and then they told me that the only option for the meal was a degustation. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to be sitting here for hours with this really <laughs> awkward family and this couple over here who looked like they were having an anniversary but probably should not be married anymore. And I, I was like, what am I going to do with myself? And so I'm sitting there thinking, oh, this is a perfect moment for my imagination. And uh, they started bringing me these courses and almost instantly this character that I'd glimpsed because of reading that descriptor, this character of this artist that I'd started to glimpse was suddenly sitting opposite me. And I thought, oh, and I got through about five courses and then I just had to go upstairs and I wrote and I wrote thousands of words and I wrote until dawn. That was in 2007 and it wasn't until 2010 that I found myself actually sitting opposite Marina Abramovich in the gaze. And she didn't even have the idea for that show until 2009, when she refined that idea down to sitting at the table. So it, there are weird things that happen, uh, but I just follow the story. I follow the characters. And I didn't mean for um, Bruni to become a political thriller or a crime thriller or whatever. Those labels get put on by publishers and by reviewers and by the industry. We have them here in Australia more than we have them in the United Kingdom or in America. They're just either good fiction or they're not good fiction elsewhere. But they get labelled here. One thing I was really conscious of with Bruni was that I wanted to put a lot of information in. So for those readers who really wanted to dig deep, there would be a lot of research sitting underneath that story. A lot to underpin Astrid's motivations and the motivations of the other characters. But I also was aware that time is limited, people have a lot of other distractions, we're all in love with Netflix series, all of that sort of stuff. So if I was going to do this thing, I had to give it pace. So, and copywriting is helpful, helpful for that. You know, I was a professional copywriter for you know, 30 years. Pacing that book became essential so that some readers just read it and they think it's hilarious. They just think, oh, that's great. That was just a, that was a fun read. Other people read it and go, ah, the world is going to end. Um, you know, it, it, there, there are very many reactions to that book. But that's partly because you can read it in different layers. So I didn't mean to ever write a magical realism book. Even when I wrote the fantasy series for children with Danielle, I remember we got shortlisted for a fantasy award and I, she rang me and said, oh, we've been 
nominated, you know, shortlisted for this fantasy award. And I said to her, that's not a fantasy novel. And she said, yes, Heather, it really is. But for me, it was a metaphor because it's about... It's, we wrote it for children who want to be writers and, and the, the premise is that this little girl, you know, goes to her mother's typewriter, her mother is missing, the window is open, she starts to type and she flies out the window and goes to the land where stories come from. But that's what we do as writers. I don't know about you, Stephen. Do you go out the window? It's a very romantic notion. Metaphorically. <laughs> metaphorically. Yeah. I normally go into landscape. Yeah, there. Mm. That, that's I find it. I find it much easier if I'm um, if if I've uh, this one of the few lessons that I can sort of take from writing that I give to other people is if you actually if I buy, buy, if I ground myself in a place things happen much better. It's yes. like the limitation that total freedom is too difficult, but yeah. actually locating myself in a place and working from that helps a lot. Do you get the landscape first? No, after sometimes. I can't say that. Sometimes it's one way, sometimes it's the other. Sometimes character first? Character normally first. Yeah. yeah. It's super interesting, that, isn't it? Yeah. Where do they come from? Yeah, I, have, no, they're, they're, I don't know where they come from. They, like, like you said, you just get this idea and then you build on them and you say, why would there be a bridge? Yes. <laughs> and, and so as soon as you ask the question is why there would be a bridge, well, then you say, oh, because the Chinese built it, right? And then you go, well, why would the Chinese build a bridge to Bruni? And, and which Chinese? And who? And what time? And what era are we in? And, um, and who was the politician that allowed it to be? And why did they allow it to be? And all these questions, as soon as you've done that, things get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then you get stuck with research because you don't know anything and then you have yeah. to find out. Yeah. I mean, I, ha I had to find out how to blow up a bridge. This is no spoiler. It happens really early in the book. But um, I, I thought, how, how do you blow up a bridge? And so I, I had a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend uh, who was an ex-paratrooper who put me in touch with an ex-very senior military person. And I wrote to this person and I said, look, this is the scenario. So two weeks go by, three weeks go by, and I get this email with an attachment, and it's come from, you know, who knows who, and it's about six pages on everything that is involved in the underwater detonation of a large pylon <laughs> uh, or two, what would it take, the depth of the water? I'd given them a few metrics, but they'd come back. But what was more disturbing than all that data, because it was really precise, was at the top, when he'd sent the email to his mate, he said, I'm gathering this as a fictional scenario. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, presumably Asia has a file on you somewhere <laughs> since, oh. since, since you received Actually, that. Actually, I, 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 I was warned after Bruni came out quite seriously by a number of senior people that I should never, ever travel to China, not even Hong Kong. It's a sort of two-part question. Uh, do you write sequentially? Do you, do you write with chapters and, and look at a plan and then sequentially write in terms of the way the narrative moves or time or... Or, and the other question is, I'm a bit concerned that you have these half a million words, you know, floating around. Do you, do you recycle? And how do you give away your um, characters? Don't, don't they keep having life somewhere else? And 
don't, don't you want to you reuse, recycle, upcycle all of this material into, into series? So I'll answer the second part first. They just, it just goes away. I, I have a file called Spares, and, um, and as, I, as I edit, as I edit, all the stuff that is not meant to be in the book goes into spares. And I have this idea that I'll maybe rescue it at some point, because it's always the darlings that have to go into spares. But they go there, and then I never open them again. And the first part... So, sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, remind me again. Sequential. Oh, that's right, sequential. The No, I don't write sequentially. I, I mean, what happens for me is I get that first scene, like with Astrid, and then I get the last scene. Some weeks later, I'll get a, a, something near the end. So I get a sense of the arc that I have to go through. I have no idea what's in the middle. And that could come in any order at any time. And sometimes I end up having to change the tense. Sometimes another character becomes more important. Uh, it's a mess. It's a mess and it's, it's chaotic uh, in, in terms of... It's, it's a lesson in surrender. There is no control for me in novel writing. I just have to surrender to the process and hope that what I'm writing is going to be useful and that's just on a day-to-day -day basis. So today I'm going to do 2,000 words and some, you know, two of those words might be useful, ultimately. Maybe none of them. But they're essential in the process to me because until I write at all, it isn't written. And somewhere along the line, I then feel a sense of, oh, I think every, I've done everything in there. And then I usually leave it for some weeks, if not months, if I can. And then I come back and read it all again, and I think, oh, the real story is this. And, and those are the critical scenes. And then I start building again, and then it goes back through that process again, and again, and again. And as Stephen said, 12. Just uh, When I went back to my file on Museum of Modern Love, because it took me 11 years, I had 78 drafts. So, you know, it's a long job, isn't it? It is a long job. But we love it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Heather. Please put your hands together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.